Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider this portion of it together in the preaching of it this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn to this portion of your word, we ask for great insight and understanding, knowing that we are helpless to even know and understand that without your help, without your spirit. But it is he who penned it, and so we now ask that you might teach us, that you might open our eyes and our ears even to the truth, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. The story I'm about to tell you, of course, is a humorous. It is not meant to be any theological pronouncement, nor is it meant to be other than what it is. Pure fiction. The story goes like this. According to legend, Satan and his demons... We're having a Christmas party. As the demonic guests were departing, one grinned and said to Satan, Merry Christmas, your majesty. At that, Satan replied with a growl, Yes, keep it merry. If they ever get serious about it, we'll all be in trouble. If they ever get serious about it, we'll all be in trouble. They ever get serious about what? Serious about the joy of the incarnation. Serious about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here described in Isaiah's prophecy as the righteous branch. Indeed, something to be serious about. The birth of a baby. The birth of the Son of God. The birth of He who is called Jesus who will save His people from their sins. Indeed, get serious about the coming of God who dwells with men. Get serious about that which God did intervening even in the very affairs of men. Indeed, if the people of God got serious about this, all the forces of evil would quake indeed at the very notion of these things. Indeed it is, in fact, God's presence among men in the person of the righteous branch is outlined by the prophet Isaiah. It is he, of course, who came in the fullness of time to do what no earthly king could do. In fact, is penned in the wake of the failures of earthly kings to accomplish the things needful. He came to do what you and I could never do. He came to preach good news to the poor. He came to right the mess created by sin. He came to rescue men from their misery. 
He came to our time and space, in fact, the right time and the right place, when all was wrong in the world, that he might offer all that is right. He came to rescue sinners, came to bring hope to a miserable people. Sadly, today, I think, all over the world, the message, though known, I challenge you to find or even ask a singular person as you walk the streets and perhaps frequent the stores and go through the malls and have conversations on social media, wherever it may be, I challenge you to find even one person who does not know the story of Christmas. The baby they understand. The reason, sadly, they miss. The disaster that sin has brought has really only one solution. As it was in the days of Isaiah, it is today. The enemies and the forces of darkness, indeed that great enemy of sin and misery, is all around us. All hope is lost without this righteous branch that Isaiah speaks about. It is a message that not only must the world hear and take seriously, but how much more those who have been redeemed of it and by it. You and I must not only see the manger, but you must see the cross. You must not only see the manger, but you must also see the throne. You must not only see him there in Bethlehem, you must also see him enthroned in majesty and glory as he who will judge the nations in you and me for what we have done with him and about him. The context of Isaiah's prophecy is one that finds the world in a very bad way. A world that is, of course, defined by the people of Israel, defined by the affairs that are occurring within, (coughs) excuse me, the context of Israel, the context of that land. It is the Assyrian army that is pressing in on Jerusalem. They are seeking to come to take it over. They are seeking to do damage against the people of God. And we read of that very much at the end of chapter 10, where God in his providence, at this particular point at least, stops them cold before they can reach the holy city. As a result, of course, the people of God, they are threatened. They are as men and women without hope in the world. They are people that feel very much the threat of the enemy and the onslaught of the enemy around them. Deserved threats because they too have departed from that which God has demanded of them, the redemption and the work that he has given to them, and they are facing judgment They are a people who are being spared, at least at this point, by God, but will eventually succumb to this Assyrian force and threats. But they are a people to be pitied. A people really without hope in the world, even though they probably couldn't explain it that way. A people who are in desperate need of God's intervening work. A people not unlike today. A people not unlike today in the world in which we live, 
in the state of our world, in the state of that which affects us even as a country, as a nation, perhaps even as a church. We want God's patience, we want His kindness, and we've been given all of it, and He's given it to them, He gave it to us, He gives it to us. In the person of this righteous branch, Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you, as Isaiah presents it here in these five verses, I want to show you this morning the identity and work of this righteous branch. He, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you how Isaiah and his prophecy weaves this identity together. He pulls it all together and his structure and his establishment of who this righteous branch might be not only tells us who it is, but he tells us what he'll do. He tells us his work, all of it culminating, of course, in he who is the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see this in two relatively simple points this morning. First, the identity of the righteous branch. None do us much good to even read Isaiah 11 if we don't know who we're talking about. And since the name is never mentioned here throughout, but the corpus of the Bible does in fact inform us of who this righteous branch might be, it is important for us then to know the identity. But then we will turn not only from the identity of this righteous branch, we will turn to his character, his work. What is it he does? And how is it that he brings hope to beleaguered people? Let's first consider the identity of this branch that Isaiah here describes. The text tells us plainly, there shall come, it's a future tense verb and structured in way that out there somewhere in the future, in the wake of this miserable context and setting of which this prophecy is penned, he gives to us this statement. Now in the immediate context is what I've already explained the immediate context of this portion of his prophecy is one. of it all is falling out. The people of God themselves have, prostri- have, have uh, prostituted themselves to idols. They have forgotten the God who has redeemed them. Sin having its due consequence has led to the destruction of not only God's enemies, but also has threatened the very matter of God's people. The very judgment of God on them. Isaiah uses this imagery. We know that this is the context. He says as much at the end of chapter 10 and the first, the last, very last verses of the chapter referring specifically to the Assyrian people, the Assyrian army, where he says, Behold, the Lord, God of hosts, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in its height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one and then he turns right away in verse 11 and begins to give in the wake of misery and disaster he gives hope he offers 
first the horrible news. And then he gives the good news. It's not unlike Isaiah to use this imagery of cutting down of trees as a picture of judgment. He does it not only here at the end of chapter 10, but he does it again also in chapter 6. That verse, of course, that chapter that you well know, that chapter that we use sometimes in a call to worship uh, there, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We tend to forget the end of the chapter, though, don't we? The end of the chapter in which Isaiah talks about what this righteous seed or this branch will actually do. In Isaiah 6 and verse 13, we read of him again, although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is who he's describing here in this chapter. And so in context, or at least in the immediate context, Isaiah is dealing with really two things. He's dealing first with the house of the Assyrians who seek to bring damage against the people of God. And then he's also at the same time dealing with the house of David. Really under the rule of Ahaz, who was of course a not so great king. In fact, he was pretty wicked. And if you think he was wicked, you ought to talk to his wife. Because she was far worse than Ahaz ever thought about being. This is to say that the times in Israel are not exactly hunky-dory. Things are pretty bad. The people have all have become almost all but non-existent. They have prostrated themselves before other gods. They have forgotten the God of their fathers. What was once mighty like the trees of Lebanon had been cut down to nothing leaving for many, for some, a remnant even, little hope, fear, great concern, calamity, a recognition that perhaps, indeed, indeed, God's judgment was falling upon them. But this prophecy doesn't merely deal with that time and place. We believe that All Scripture is inspired of God. It is profitable not only for those who read Isaiah's prophecy in that day. We believe also that it's it's profitable for us today. In 2022, what exactly will we learn? What can we learn from the clear context that is before us? In a much broader sense, the prophecy not only deals with those immediate issues but it also looks forward to a greater hope, a great hope, in a time when there is great calamity. A time when there is great difficulty facing the people of God, even the faithful. A time when sin has run its course, the consequences of sin are all around. Some scholars might argue and have argued that these opening, this opening verse of Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 11 is pointing to the reign of Hezekiah, which, as you know, was not a terrible reign. He was one of the few good kings of the southern kingdom. Maybe it was about Zerubbabel or Josiah. But most conclude that the ultimate issues that Isaiah is highlighting here transcends all of them, and indeed it does. 
The ultimate issue is really the coming of the Messiah. The hope of the people of old, the hope of that which ails those who seek hope in a hopeless world. Much like the days of Isaiah, the days in which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came as the righteous branch into this world was not all that much better. Think just with me. And this was me just creating a list of the state of the world in which Christ entered. He entered a world in which his people, the people, the people of God were scattered They were a sheep without a shepherd, he said. He wept over them as he wept over, as he would weep over lost sheep. He entered a world that was an occupied world. His people, the people of God, had been taken over by Rome. In fact, it was one of the points of confusion even for the people during his first advent in which he came and they thought that he was there to free them from this tyranny. He came into a world in which his people were misled by so-called scholars and religious leaders. We heard of those people in Matthew 23, which by the way was picked Well, by providence, actually, because you know we're reading through the New Testament consecutively. But his sheep are harassed by them. These rulers, put a different way, the church leaders were misleading them. He came into a world in which his people were persecuted. Even the prophets before him, the godly and the righteous, but a different way, he came into a world that was a mess. But he came in exactly the right time, in the fullness of time, in accordance with all that God had determined to do. Not to free a people from Rome, but to free them from themselves, from their sin and their misery and all that has caused the calamities of our world. When we look around and we see even today in our world, we wonder what it is, what it is that causes so much sorrow, so much pain, so much misery. I've seen the enemy, and the enemy is me. He came to rescue us. This righteous branch, even as he came then, he comes now, even in the picture of the first advent, we see this person who comes not enthroned, not in pomp and circumstance. In fact, Isaiah makes this very clear the way he describes it here. It's this one who would come, this holy seed, this one that would come from the stump of not David, but of Jesse. What is Isaiah doing here? What does he want us to see? He wants us to see that he comes in holy or humble and meek manner. 
Unlike the kings around him in his day, unlike the kings in Isaiah's day who would be full of themselves and proud and boastful, Isaiah highlights the reality of this humble king who would come. He doesn't even mention, of course, David here. He mentions his father, the father of David. Out of all that remains from the glory days of David's reign, is that a mere shadow now? And it is from this stump, this mere shadow, that this righteous branch will appear. This righteous branch that is in the line of the house of Jesse, or the house of David. Because Isaiah here is referring, of course, to the coming Messiah, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is pointing us to one by using this name, Jesse, a simple common man who raised shepherds and then he raised military sons. From this humble beginning would come the humble one of Israel. Not in fame and might and all the world's pomp and circumstance, but in a lowly way, really in obscurity, on some night, on some calendar. It is a picture of humble beginning. The humble beginning of the Son of God who took on flesh. Consider the circumstances of his birth. Now, we go to more effort to inaugurate a president than the King of Kings received. He came in an extremely humble manner. Most of you, if not all of you, in fact, I'll just go out on a limb and say, all of you were likely born in a comfortable room, in a bed, maybe in a hospital, maybe not. Probably not in a barn or a manger. Pretty humble beginning. What about his residence? This one from the stump of Jesse and a branch that will bear fruit lived in a city in which people mocked. Can anything good come from Nazareth? When I was growing up in the South, just to mention the fact that I was born, that I lived in New York was almost akin to asking for trouble. Nazareth had a reputation, apparently, one of scorn. What about the circumstances of his life? Just reading with my wife this morning in family worship. From the words of William J. in his morning exercises about how this one didn't even have a place to lay his own head. Every one of you do. Not the Lord of glory. Circumstances of life were, were one of humble and meek. He suffered. 
the hands of evil people. He was mocked. He was scorned. What about the circumstances of his death? Again, I'll go out on a limb. Chances are really good none of you will be crucified. Crucifixion was an awful thing, miserable, beyond imagination. It was humiliating in every respect, all of it. Highlighting his birth, his residence, his life, and the things that he did, and how he was treated, and even in his death, all of it highlights the humble beginning of the son of Jesse, who came into a world that was in utter chaos. Isaiah tells us that it would bear fruit. He would bear fruit. There's some question as to the antecedent here. Just exactly what does this even mean? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What would come then from this stump, this holy seed, this stump from Jesse, who comes in a holy way, in a holy manner? The issue is one of contrast. Prior to Isaiah 11, we have these wicked leaders in Assyria. We have King Ahaz reigning on the throne. We have a lot of wickedness around the very people of God. We have a lot of chaos, a lot of calamity, a lot of no hope in the world. And now here comes this one, born into humble circumstances. Unlike the human failures of evil kings, this king, born into lowly circumstances, would rule not in unrighteousness, but in righteousness. In the story of Ahaz, in the story of all the ten kings of the northern kingdom too, they were all awful. I said ten kings, I'm not exactly sure that's right, but the ten tribes, all those kings, bad, evil people, unrighteous to the core, not this king, not this one. Unlike the human failures of evil kings, this king, born into lowly circumstances, would reign over a kingdom that will have no end. David's kingdom is all but non-existent. <coughs> it's almost gone. But this king will reign over a kingdom that will never, ever die. <coughs> Unlike the human failures of evil kings, this king, born into lowly circumstances, will bring true peace to the world. He who is the Prince of Peace. Glad tidings I give to you. All that the angels proclaimed. A peace that will be ushered in, not in a way the world expected or expects. A peace that can come only from his death. Unlike the human failures of evil kings, this king, born into lowly circumstances, will conquer the great enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Unlike the earthly kings and the human failures of evil kings, this king, born into lowly circumstances, will be one we can trust, praise, and find real lasting hope in a world gone absolutely mad. From the ash heap of a miserable world, 
comes this stump of Jesse, a branch, starting out very small like a mustard seed. It grows and bears fruit that lasts forever. The failure of the kings, the attacks against the righteous, the demise of the people, they all set the stage really for the coming of the humble king who will spring forth from the ruins and bear fruit. It isn't a fruit of material prosperity. It is the fruit that we'll find on the throne of David, he who embodies all the ideals of the Davidic kingdom, but in complete perfection. It is Emmanuel. It is God with us. He who comes from the stump of Jesse is no other, is no one other but the God of heaven. He in the second person of the Trinity who enters into our world to rescue us from the calamity that we face every day. Our sin, the world's sin, wickedness and unrighteousness and evil. He comes as one endowed with power from on high. Isaiah goes out of his way to tell us how this is even accomplished as he sets forth for us the character of this righteous branch. You might say and even be asked, how is it that Jesus, the seed of Jesse, the stump from Jesse, who comes in this miserable estate in the ash heap of the world, comes to rescue sinners, how is it that he could do all the things that he did? How is it he could accomplish all that he accomplished? You might say, well, because he was God. Well, you wouldn't be wrong, but you wouldn't be completely right either. Because Isaiah tells us right here in the text how it is that this who was God who became man took to himself humanity to do this. What is it that this righteous branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, received from his father that he might accomplish the work that his father gave for him to do. How is it that he would be unlike all the other rulers of the earth? How is it he could accomplish this mission? He did it because of the reason Isaiah tells us. It's right there in the text, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What is interesting, really, about this expression is that now, here, in these five verses, we have uh, very much the doctrine of the Trinity being laid out. We have, of course, in the stump of Jesse, the Son. We have, of course, in the Spirit, yes, you guessed it, the third person, the Holy Spirit. And the Father, of course, is the one who decrees these events to be. The Spirit of the Lord rested on him. The picture of the blessing of the Spirit is not unseen even in the Old Testament economy. It has fruition, of course, in, the, in David's greater son, the, the prophet, priest, and king. But in the instances of this Spirit in the Old Testament, all of them point us forward to the period when the righteous branch would appear. And although it is true that Jesus possessed the Spirit from his conception, 
it is also true that the Spirit resided on him in fullness as pictured by his baptism. It is there and the world witnesses that they see it, of course, as the Spirit descending like a dove, like a dove upon him. There the Father speaking, the Son receiving, and the Spirit's coming upon him in great fullness that he might do all that was needful. He does it at the Jordan River, of course, a place that has strong biblical theological overtones all the way through the canon of the Bible. Let me just give you two cases that directly connect this idea in which here the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Moses, of course, was a man full of the Spirit, given great help of the Spirit. Arguably the greatest character in the Bible outside of Christ, who died. Joshua took the reins. It was there in Joshua chapter 1 in which God comes to him to encourage him, to give to him the mission, give to him the work that he was to do, promises to be with him. He does it there at the Jordan River. It's not too long after this, uh, throughout the historical narrative, that we meet two figures, two characters, both Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, a man of the Spirit, a man full of the Spirit, who was asked by his predecessor to give, be given a double portion of his Spirit. Where does he do that? Well, shockingly, at the Jordan River. Jesus is baptized at the Jordan River. There he receives not a double portion of the Spirit, not a three-quarters, not a triple portion, not a, no, beyond measure, our standards tell us. How is it that Jesus could just justly judge the world? How is it that he can live righteously? How is it that he does these things that Isaiah highlights for us? How is it he could accomplish all of the things that he accomplished? How can he do it? Because he had the Spirit beyond measure. That he might do the work that his Father gave him to do. He must never be tempted to divorce that which is known as the hypostatic union, the union of the God-man, of, the, of, the, 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 of God himself in his deity and his manhood. He was fully God and fully man. Two natures, one person. The Spirit of God rested upon him. This righteous branch is equipped for the tremendous task of bringing peace to chaos, righting what is wrong, healing the nations, forgiving sin, and bringing His righteousness to helpless sinners. A true peace that can only come through He who is the Prince of Peace. He does it as the suffering servant of Jehovah who ushers in peace for all He came to save. It is through the Spirit that He will preach good tidings to all people. It is the Spirit that rested on him, the Spirit of the Lord that guides him. 
Isaiah tells us that the Spirit of the Lord gives to him three, really what is known as three categories, at least in the words of some commentators, three categories of things. I borrowed them. I think they're useful, at least in means by which we might remember them. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, wisdom and perception. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You might scratch your head at that. How is it that the Son of God learned He grew in wisdom and favor with men. How is it that he he was given these things by the Spirit, the ability to render right decisions at the right time so that one may act in accordance with what is right? It includes intelligence, of course, but comprehends far more than that. He was given the spirit of counsel and might, really a practical item. In fact, earlier, Isaiah even referred to him as Wonderful Counselor. Some of you have been in counseling. Some of you have had counseling from men. And There's something to be said about a man full of the Spirit who has the Spirit and giving wise direction. This is what Jesus does. He was given this category of knowledge. The spirit of knowledge was granted to him. He learned that which he was to learn by his suffering. He increased in knowledge as he grew up as the God-man. He grew in the knowledge of his Father's will and his word. I know you think, that's just, I can't comprehend any of that. No, of course not. I asked one of your elders earlier this week to do an exam that asked the question to define for us the hypostatic union. It's altogether mysterious, but yet it's true. All of it from the Spirit who moved him, the text tells us. What is it that Jesus would come to do and how would he do it? What was it that drove him on so? Well, the text tells us as much as delight was in the fear of the Lord. He delighted to do the will of his Father. Unlike his predecessors, this one, the Messiah, the one to come, will fear the Lord in complete perfection. It's his delight and it is that which moves him to obedience to do all of his Father's will. One commentator puts it this way. He says, in contrast to the way in which all other human beings live in rebellion against God, the coming Messiah will be the ideal in his human faithfulness, finding deep joy in living before God in reverence and in promoting reverence. How does he do that? The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. Brothers and sisters, As you come before the God of heaven each Lord's Day, you have the means by which you can come and worship rightly to revere and adore the God of heaven. You have the Spirit. You have that which Jesus had, at least in part, 
You have it. You come to adore Him just as Christ desired to adore Him. The Spirit of the Lord moved Him. And He helped Him do what is right. What does He do that is right? According to Isaiah here, He judges with righteousness the poor and the weak. Instead of mistreating them, He invites them to come and find rest. Unlike the kings before who would use the poor and the weak and the impoverished of their kingdom, He invites the lowliest of people to sit at His table, to judge with righteousness and kindness. He, the righteous branch, who would not break the bruised reed, those without hope in the world who are struggling and miserable, He will not extinguish them. And so He comes not only to help the poor and needy, but to also make right what has been wrong. He judges the nations. He does it in equity and truth. Unlike the kings of his day, unlike the kings before his day, he is not influenced or even swayed by the popular opinion of people. Unlike presidents in our world today who look at the surveys and the polls every morning to see how they're doing and how they're not doing, and then they change based on those things, this one never does that. He judges justly according to his Father's word. He judges according to it the holy law of God. He judges those who might trouble his people, at the same time bringing hope and comfort to them. This indeed is the one who comes from the place of misery, the place in which the world had gone completely nuts. Not unlike our world today. He still offers the same message and the same truth. The same hope is extended by this, the seed, the stump of Jesse, who has the Spirit of the Lord residing on him, delights to do his Father's will. It's the same message as then as it is now. Or now as it was then, come unto me all who are weary. And people were weary, tired. And so we go to He who is able to help us in that which we struggle with. The righteous branch who comes from obscurity into a dark and dying world is really the message of the passage. It is the message that we must hear again and be reminded again that this is man's only hope. 
It's not another leader or another world power. It's not another king. They had plenty of them in Isaiah's day. No, it's this king. It's this one. We need to hear it every week. Not just during this time of the year. Every week. We need to be reminded of the righteous branch that comes from lowly estate who is now enthroned on high in glory. Who has come to save us and rescue us from our miserable affairs. Our sin, our lives that are affected by it. Who else except he who came from the stump of Jesse is able to overcome, overturn, and resolve the real issues of our world? Is it our leaders? Is it our friends? Who? It is Jesus Christ and only Him. Through His coming in mere obscurity to His awful death, He secured true and lasting peace and overturned the forces of evil. It is finished, He said. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He offered his life that we might find hope. He's not in that grave, as you know, but he continues to serve his church. He continues to pour out His Spirit. He said it Himself, it's better if I go away that I might send you My Spirit, the Spirit that He had. He now sends to His people that we might live righteous before Him by that Spirit that He learned is the Spirit in which we learn. And we learn that unlike the earthly kingdoms of which He entered and the world in which He lived, We are now citizens of a kingdom that shall never die. Led and ruled by a one who is righteous and holy. And one that has given to us all that we need. We tend to fixate our minds at this time of the year merely on the manger. While there is nothing wrong with that per se, We must never lose sight of the ultimate reason that he came. He came not to create a holiday. He came as one from obscurity into obscurity. That he might alone be exalted by his people and rescue his people from their sin. You need to take that seriously. Christian, you need to take it seriously. Your whole life, not just in December, must be about Him and for Him. He will judge justly with equity. Unbeliever, you don't get a pass. I don't know where you are. Only the God of heaven does. But you've heard, even in the preaching of the word, something of the Savior. One of holy, humble and lowly estate, 
who bids the sinners, you even, to come to me. Your life a mess, you come to me. You struggle with sin, you come to me. You fear death, you come to me. You have struggles in life, you come to me. I will give you hope. I will give you rest. I will offer you what nobody else in this world will ever be able to offer you. I will forgive you, but you don't understand my sin. He does. He will forgive you, but you don't understand what I've done. He will forgive you. Look, he forgave this guy. He can forgive anyone. He forgave the Apostle Paul. He can forgive anyone. There is no sin so great that it outruns the grace of this holy, righteous branch. Jesus Christ Himself. But you cannot ignore it. He will judge. He will judge in equity. He won't be interested in your relationships or friendships. What you did or did not do, the only thing that will matter is if you've placed your hope in Him. And you must do that. There are many in Jesus' day as He came into that obscurity as the righteous branch from lowly estates that rejected Him. There were many who didn't. What will you do? You will either embrace the Savior and find rest for your soul, or you will continue to live like the people in Isaiah's day and the people of our day in complete chaos with no rest and with no hope. Jesus came to bring hope to hurting people. He's brought that hope. The question really is, do you see him? Have you embraced him? The hope of glory, the righteous branch, the seed of Jesse, born in humble manner, all that he might rescue poor, pitiful sinners, that he might rescue you and me. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you might apply that which has been said into the hearts and minds of your people, that we would see even in this portion of your word the obscurity of which our Savior was born, and He's done it for our sake. May we see Him now exalted, glorified. May we serve Him. May You help us. We are so dependent. Grant us Your Spirit that we might do all that You've told us we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.